Welcome to the Die Hard Minute, where Movies by Minute hosts talk about the 1988 John McTiernan-directed movie, Die Hard, one minute at a time. I'm Rick of the Mad Max Minute Podcast. And I'm Julia, also of the Mad Max Minute Podcast. And today we're talking about Minute 27, which begins with Hans Gruber looking for Mr. Takagi among the other hostages, and it ends with an awkward elevator ride up to the executive office. We mentioned yesterday that we're going to continue talking about history a little bit, maybe be a little less uh, depressing than we were yesterday. So we start off today with Hans Gruber going into Mr. Takagi's more educational history, talking about how he was a scholarship student at the University of California. So the University of California is an interesting institution in that it has, as of 2005, 10 different campuses. Now, when Mr. Takagi went there in 1955, there were only six, an additional four opened up after he graduated. But what's nice to hear is that he was able to attend the University of California on a scholarship, and that despite his family basically being brought back to square one by the internment camps, they were still able to work hard enough to get him to college. Yeah, I feel like there's a story there Mm -hmm. that in this Wikipedia rundown of Takagi, we make a big leap from Manzanar to college. Right, because he got out when he was like a six-year-old. So he still had the entirety of elementary school and middle school and high school for his parents to struggle back from zero to become, you know, where they were before the war. And I think it's a great testament to Joseph as an individual, but also the tenacity of his parents to create an environment for him to succeed enough that he would go through high school and apply to the University of California, get scholarships, and eventually graduate from there. I think it's spectacular that he was able to do that, and I think a true testament to who he is as a person. Yeah, people, uh, especially politicians, um, especially one particular politician, uh, likes to talk about how the American dream is dead. This, I know this is a fictional person, but this happens all, these sorts of things happen all the time. The American dream is not dead. This is the American dream. Mm -hmm. People coming to this country, people who are from this country, through their own hard work and, and force of will and good luck, you know, make something of themselves. And it doesn't have to be this grand thing that Takagi has done, the prestigious schools that is listed and the scholarships and it doesn't have to be this huge success. It's it's making whatever you want. And people say it's the American dream is dead and it's not. For crying out loud, we are free to analyze movies minute by minute. <laughs> And publish it out there for the world to listen to. That is the American dream. We get to do what we want to do. I'm going to have to get a little clip of patriotic music and play that after. <laughs> or play that underneath you. I'll fix it in post. I'll fix it in post. So, you should use Ode to Joy. Uh, that's not patriotic enough. I'll no, use like not. America the Beautiful or something. <laughs> so as I mentioned, the University of California has a lot 
of campuses. Uh, the Berkeley location was incorporated in 1868. You then It's then followed by the San Francisco location, Davis, Santa Barbara, UCLA came around in 1919. Riverside, UC Riverside, opened a year before Takagi graduated. Now, I thought him growing up in San Pedro, being a suburb of Los Angeles, that when Takagi applied to the University of California, he would go to UCLA uh, because it's in the same town he lives. But according to the Die Hard Wikia and also a fan-created account that I found on LinkedIn, um, I'm not sure how LinkedIn feels about having fictional, fictional characters in their database. But according to those two locations, he attended UC Berkeley. So he went to the original University of California okay. and graduated in 1955. I know with a lot of universities that have multiple locations, which is a fairly common mm-hmm. Uh, structure that different locations have different programs right so most i i think most likely that berkeley had the program that he was interested in yeah and especially if ucla was new their offerings were probably fairly limited Mm. yeah i think ucla is about 50 years younger than uc berkeley okay yeah Uh. Now, I granted, that Berkeley much more established, many more programs. Berkeley was started in 1868. UCLA was started in 1919. So, whichever one he went to mm-hmm. by the 1950s or late 40s, like they were both pretty established, but one just slightly newer than the other one. Yep. So, as Hans is walking through the crowd and he mentions the University of California, he gets right face to face with Harry Ellis. I love who this. Is, I love this moment. Oh, he he just snorted a nose full of uh, cocaine and he is still feeling the immediate effects of being high on coke and now he's in this high stress environment and so when Han gets right up in his face he does this little head shake yeah that I took to mean like no I'm not Takagi (laughs) I'm not that guy (laughs) and in my head I'm like yeah duh And it's like, yeah, of course you're not Joseph Takagi yeah. because <laughs> yeah, he has no idea what's going on. Yeah, he's going out of his mind. He's like, this is not what I wanted to happen when I snorted coke. <laughs> this is the 1980s. This is supposed to be fun. <laughs> <laughs> but it's good. I'm glad you met, brought this up that Hans, as he's walking through this crowd, he's kind of creeping up and menacing like every older Japanese looking man in that crowd. Yeah. Almost like some weird game of guess who. (laughs) (laughs) Did your character go to the University of California? Yes. Now he flips down all the other people on the board. And, you know, so he continues. And the next place that Mr. Takagi went to is he went to Stanford and got his law degree in 1962. So only took him seven years to get his law degree. I'm not sure how fast you can get law degrees, but I feel like... I, I like don't that's a have a comparison <laughs> in my head for that. Now, law school itself is four years, right? But law school is, you you already have to get into law school, you already have to have a four-year degree. Yeah. So standard, I think, is eight years. Yeah. So if you did it in seven, that's very, very good because mm. those are four very intense years. Yeah. So Stanford as Granted, an institution. Oh. all of my knowledge of law school is from Legally Blonde. So oh. don't quote me on that. 
Okay. Well, it's more information than I have. (laughs) So anyway, Stanford as an establishment uh, began in 1893, and Stanford Law is currently ranked, currently ranked, not 1980s, currently, by the U.S. News and World Report as the second best law school in the United States, and it has been ranked as one of the top three law schools every year since 1993, with the other two law schools being Yale and Harvard. They kind of all jumble around every given year. One of them will pop up to the number one spot. But in this current year, Sanford is popped down below one of those other two. I have a silly question. Okay. Where is Stanford located? Stanford is in California. I'm going to... Because there's a Stanford, Connecticut. And you know, Connecticut being in New England, there's lots of Ivy League stuff going on. So I always kind of assumed that... Stanford University was in Connecticut. Nope. Stanford is actually in Stanford, California. Okay. So I was not off base assuming that Stanford University was in Stanford, Connecticut. No. Okay. Um, Because it's actually in Stanford, California. Stanford is located in Santa Clara County. So north of LA, south of San Francisco. Okay. You think I would have put that right in my notes, but that's why I have links in my notes to help me look stuff up like that. Stanford Law is consistently regarded as one of the most prestigious law schools in the world. It's another really good mark on Takagi's history that he got into a really good school on a scholarship and then he went to one of the most prestigious law schools in the world. Mm -hmm. Like, that's pretty awesome. And not only that, when he was done with his law degree, he got his master's at the Harvard Business School. Which is over here on the East Coast. I'm glad he at some point left <laughs> Came the West to the Coast. East Coast yeah. yeah, California does not get all the credit. Right. Um, Harvard's actually right down the road from us in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Yes. Uh, can't say I've ever spent much time there, but no, I think universities like the the big ones like MIT, Harvard, Yale, you are allowed to just go to campus. It's like the school that you work at. You can just go to campus. Mm-hmm. There's no gates. There's no, you know, showing an ID. You can just go. And those larger universities, they have like museums and exhibits and things. You can just go and see them. Yeah. I think the main thing that keeps us from visiting a big institution like Harvard is that it's going to be full of like a bunch of young kids that are just really smart. Right. And it's like, I don't want to. And we are now at the age where we're old compared to them and we're going to feel old. Yeah. Although. Going on campus. Although I'm pretty sure there are probably graduate students that are still our age. Yes. Yes, that is true. (laughs) We're not We're not tell that you old. Exactly how old we are. That'd be weird. <laughs> so, going back to Harvard, in 2017, the Harvard Business School was tied for first by the U.S. News World Report, number one in the U.S. by Bloomberg Businessweek, and fourth in the world by the Financial Times. Like, this is the cream of the crop when it comes to getting your master's in business associations. Like, this is the place to go. In fact, Harvard Business School is part of a group called the M7 and they are kind of elite MBA programs that all kind of see themselves on the same par so you've got Harvard Business School, Chicago Booth, Columbia, Harvard, Kellogg, MIT Sloan, Stanford and Wharton are all like really prestigious organizations that you can go to this program at and if you get your masters in business associations from any one of those like you're set. In like Flynn? In like Flynn. Now all of those schools um, I recognize all the names, but I'm not like familiar with them. Are they all in the United States? Yes, I believe so. Interesting. Because I mean, England has 
a rich history of education. So I'm kind of surprised that they don't have a school in this M7 club. Yeah, it's different educational guidelines or benchmarks or standards, you know. It makes sense that all the members of the M7 group would be in America because they all have very similar standards of excellence in an American education system. Yes. So I think that's what it is. Yeah, that makes sense. So once Hans talks about Mr. Takagi getting his master's degree in 1970, he goes on to talk about how Mr. Takagi is the president of Nakatomi Trading. Interestingly enough, Nakatomi Trading Company is a real-life company. It's not exactly the same type of company as it's depicted in the movie. If you go to nakatomi-trading.com, they have a nice English language website because they are a used cars and heavy construction equipment exporter based in the city of Kobe, central Japan. Their tagline is, we provide a great variety of highest quality used vehicles from Japan to our customers worldwide. So based on that description, kind of the company that I'm picturing in my head is like a classic used car lot that also happens to have used construction equipment. But I would imagine that they probably do more business in the used construction equipment because why buy new construction equipment when you can get used at half the price? Right. It's like buying used uh, kitchen equipment. Like, if you can get used for a good price and good quality, get used. There's no point in buying new. Yeah. (laughs) And it seems like that would be the market that would be regional or global as opposed to just used cars. Yeah. Used cars, that's not, that's, you know, that's a town-wide market. It'd be a county-wide market. Japan is a huge manufacturer of vehicles. And so it would make sense that if you can gather a bunch of used vehicles and ship them worldwide, you can reach into markets that are way beyond any used car salesman type of thing. That's true because markets like China or India that are growing at such a fast pace, frenzied Mm. pace, where they could probably move these used cars Mm -hmm. like, I don't know, some... Some witty metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, they've got they've got a pretty slick looking website. It's got construction vehicles on the homepage. Um, they've got auction cars, heavy machinery, container vanning, uh, shipping. They have uh, parts wholesale that they can uh, ship out. It's um, pretty, expen- pretty extensive. And I just find it a little funny that... I love that it's a real company. Yeah, it's a real company. And I think it's just because when you pick a name, you just... Sometimes you run a risk of that actually just being the name of a region or a person or a town that someone's going to base a real company around. Um, Do you know when the real-life Nagatomi Trading Company started? Were they already around when this movie filmed and was released? (laughs) No. uh, Nagatomi Trading Limited has been around since 2010. Oh, not that long at all. Not that long at all. Okay. They don't have an about page on their I, website but I down at the bottom you can see it that it's that it's a copycat no. that they I, I would assume it's somebody's name or the name of a region of a town yeah they offer very competitive prices excellent customer service and fast shipment uh i feel like it's appropriate that i mention that we are not sponsored <laughs> by nakatomi trading although i mean if they did want to sponsor the podcast they should contact jim O'Kane. Just head to diehardminute.com, look for his contact information there. Hey, maybe this happens every episode. I don't know. <laughs> Just saying. 
if you're listening and you work for Nakatomi Trading, throw us a bone. We d- none of us make any money off of this hobby. We're so poor. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> it's not that bad. Anyway. So Hans continues, um, vice chairman of Nakatomi Investment Group. So you have Nakatomi Trading. You have the Nakatomi Investment Group. Obviously, one is one branch of this large company. One is kind of the the parent company. Because if he's president of one thing, but only vice chairman of the other thing, Nakatomi Investment Group is obviously the larger of the two entities. Yes. So out of curiosity, I was wondering, okay, well, how big is this corporation? And it turns out it's pretty big. Because back in 2011, Forbes wrote an article uh, specifically Michael Knower, who works uh, as part of Forbes' staff, he wrote an article called The 25 Largest Fictional Companies. Now, these are all companies from movies, books, pop culture entities, and the Nakatomi Corporation is actually on that list. It's in the number 24 spot, but it's on the list. And they estimate the Nakatomi Corporation to be worth $2.5 billion. Now, is that... They don't say anything about adjusting for inflation. Okay. So I'm going to assume that everything is adjusted and on an even playing field. Yeah, that's... Yeah, I would assume that too. Now, interestingly enough, the next company after Nakatomi on list is Spacely Space Sprockets from the Jetsons. Okay. Yeah, that's where George Jetson works. Yeah. And he has that tiny little boss. And Yes. Yeah. Interesting. I guess by virtue of being a space company, mm-hmm. there are inherent costs and inherent assets that would push up the value of your company. Yeah. Just by virtue of being in space. So right above Nakatomi Corporation in the number 23 spot, and I think the Spider-Man Minute team will get a kick out of this, is actually Oscorp from Spider-Man. Oscorp is valued at about $3.1 billion, so little less than a billion more than Nakatomi. But I think you might get a real kick out of the number 22 spot, which is Gringotts from Harry Potter. Wow. So the bank that controls... Seemingly, a vast majority of the Wizarding World's wealth is only worth $4.4 billion. Interesting. Very interesting. Would you like to know? I'm dying to know what number one is, but I'm kind of caught on the whole Gringotts thing. (laughs) Um, It's interesting because included in their value, I I would assume the contents of the vaults are not included in their value. You got to remember, this is just the corporation. It's not the assets of the people right. using the bank. This is the because power. Gringotts doesn't work like a Muggle bank. Muggle banks and credit unions take your money, do other things with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Gringotts—they just let it sit. They, yeah, there are no bank accounts. Everyone just has a vault. Yeah, and you just put whatever you darn well please in that vault. But when you put your money in a bank, they—that's their money now. They yeah. get to do other things with it. Um, but when you put something in a Gringotts vault, they don't take possession of it. They just guard the door. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah. It's huh. weird. Okay, so who's number one? So the number one richest fictional company is the Chome Corporation from Dune. These are the people that oh. make sure that the spice flows. Yes, I, I don't know much about this company. I think I've seen Dune once. Mm-hmm. And I spent most of the time being squeamish about the guy with the gross face. Because <laughs> that was really gross and I had a real hard time with it. Oh, um, yeah. David but they Lin- were like multiple planets. Yeah. And they had a monopoly on this spice that kept people young. 
It was the spice that allowed interplanetary travel. Ah, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. David Lynch's Dune is quite the trip. Like, literally, it's a trip. Yes. But the Chome Corporation is worth an estimated $1.7 trillion. Yeah. Interestingly enough, the number two spot is the Acme Corp from Looney Tunes. <laughs> Because they make everything. Right, they're so far-reaching. Exactly. And then rounding out the top three is the Sirius Cybernetics Corporation from Hitchhiker's Guide. Oh, which I know nothing about. Yeah. <laughs> That's one of those books that it's kind of in the back of my head on my list to read, mm -hmm. but hasn't happened. And I remember seeing the movie, having never read any of the books, and was kind of confused by the whole premise. Yeah. Because I wasn't aware of the premise ahead of time, being very confused about that movie. Maybe I should go back and watch it. Yeah, I'm a little bummed out. Uh, Omni Consumer Products is not on the list, so I love, 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 love RoboCop, but it's not on there. There's no chance of anything from Mad Max being on that list, because money isn't really a thing. Right. In the Mad Max universe. Right. But they have other commodities like fuel and water. Exactly. But there are other standout entries on the list. And uh, this is going to be something that really sticks in the craw of Marvel versus DC fanboys. <laughs> Stark Industries, they estimate they're worth at $20.3 billion. But they're at spot number 16 with Wayne Enterprises <gasps> up at slot number 11. Ooh. Estimated $31.3 billion. Ooh. Maybe Stark should have stayed in the weapons business a little bit longer, <laughs> pushed his value up a little bit higher. <laughs> I don't know about that, but... Um, since I'm not a fan of Batman, I don't know a lot about Wayne Enterprises, but... But Stark, I mean, Wayne Enterprises at least has an R&D division. I know they do lots of stuff mm -hmm. around the city. And they have an R&D division, and that's where Batman gets his toys. But I feel like Stark's toys, his his suits, are way more advanced oh, technologically absolutely. and therefore more valuable than Wayne's toys. So... I don't know how I feel about that. Yeah, it's an interesting little observation. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Way off minute. Yeah, I think <laughs> the next line that we get from Mr. Takagi, enough, definitely sums up this tangent that we've got on. Yeah. It pulls us back into the minute because Mr. Takagi is tired of hearing Hans list his biography. Either that or he's just tired of him playing guess who with the uh, with the hostages. He's tired right. of seeing him walk around and looking really intently at every older Japanese man's face right. in the crowd. He's <laughs> playing this intimidation game and Takagi is done playing. Yeah, he's tired of it. He says, enough. And then Hans Gruber, smug as can be, turns around and adds, and father of five. And kind of lucky for Hans that Mr. Takagi had enough of that because it kind of seemed like he was at the end of his rope for his little book of notes. And so if he had run out of material to say, like, would he have just started listing the names of the children? Because it's like, yeah, and their, <laughs> their educational accomplishments, because I, I assume they're probably also very accomplished. Mm -hmm. He's an older gentleman, so probably several of those children are probably grown. So <laughs> Hans probably would have had to stop, open up his book and be like, oh, yes, let me read the children now. <laughs> Maybe Holly had the right idea. Maybe if Mr. Takagi had just stayed quiet and let Hans rattle off, he never would have found him. They never would have progressed to the next step in the plan. <laughs> and the whole thing he would have been just, upset. Yeah. 
He just keep listing off his children and their accomplishments and his grandchildren and the accomplishments of the spouses of his children and the accomplishments of his wife and the accomplishments of the other people in the head of the company. And he could have gone on for hours, maybe. I just I still think it's ridiculous. And we brought this up yesterday. It's ridiculous that he does not have a picture of Mr. Takagi that he just pulls out of his book and holds up and be like, hey. Hey, you, you in the crowd, <laughs> Mr. Takagi, yeah. get over here. <laughs> it is also quite possible that this is part of the game that Gruber is playing. Right. That he is forcing Takagi to make a move. Mm-hmm. Gruber has made his his grand gesture, and he's forcing Takagi to make a move. So that's exactly what happens, though, because yep. Mr. Takagi steps forward and says, I am Takagi. And so Hans turns to him and he says, oh, how do you do? It's a pleasure to meet you. Very polite. He is very very polite very and polite. back to the idea from the last minute that i brought up the the idea of good cop bad cop he's he's playing good cop even mm-hmm. while being a villain mm-hmm. clearly a villain he's still playing good cop he's still being very polite sophisticated uh not showing not threatening direct violence mm-hmm. yeah he doesn't need to di- he doesn't need to threaten direct violence because as soon as he said it's a pleasure to meet you a couple of thugs rush in and pull right mr takaki like, right Thank you. <laughs> yep. As if trained to do so. So Mr. Takagi has been pulled from the crowd and we get a quick clip of John McClane. This is only, I think, one of two or three instances we get this week of actually being able to see John McClane. Yes. The rest of this week is just spent with Hans Gruber, which I'm not yeah, I'm, complaining about. I'm okay with that. <laughs> but we get to see John poking around the other floors. He's realized that the elevators are out of his control and namely that he's outnumbered you know he evaded the guys searching the rooms and he got off of that floor and so now he needs to get his lay of the land so this is really his police training coming to bear he knows that if he is going to succeed he needs to have some sort of tactical advantage he's outgunned he's outnumbered so if he knows the lay of the land then he can use that to his advantage yes that is what i thought at first And then I thought about it a little bit more. I don't think that having the lay of the land is necessarily an advantage over the other people Mm -hmm. because the, the, the group of terrorists, if they're worth their salt at all, have poured over the blueprints right for the floors that are applicable to them so i think john isn't necessarily gaining an advantage he's just bringing himself up to par in one area that he is able to bring himself up to par right and we see in the coming minutes in the rest of the movie that he is working to bring himself up to par in other ways as well yeah i say he's such a good hero in this movie because he makes smart decisions yes now, granted, he's already made the biggest mistake in this movie of leaving his shoes behind, but that was so long ago. <laughs> yeah, he already made the biggest mistake of taking his shoes off to stand on a bathroom rug. Yeah, we didn't get an opportunity to weigh in on the fact that Holly's executive bathroom has a carpet. It's carpeted. Carpeted bathrooms are disgusting. disgusting. Like, And now that's all over his feet. Okay. Now, granted, you're not necessarily going to shower in an executive bathroom, but you're going to use the toilet in an executive bathroom. And, you know, little bits of moisture come out of toilets all the time. And you know what? Now that's in your carpet. 
Yep. And you're walking on that, and it's just down there, probably growing something. It is gross. And yep. Absolutely. We do not like stuff like that. Nope. Give us tile. If you're gonna have a bathroom, go with tile. Absolutely. Thank you. It's probably a good thing that we did not get that minute. Oh my gosh. That's the only thing we would have talked about for that minute. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway. <laughs> We go from John running up and down stairs back into where Hans and Mr. Takagi are riding in an elevator. And Hans Gruber is not exactly humming. He's, you know, do, 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 do. I don't know what that's called. It's not scat because scat's a little more freeform and jazzy. Right. He's, he's just kind of half singing it to himself. Yeah. And it's Ode to Joy. The Ode to Joy from the fourth movement of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, and completed I've had in 1824. It stuck in my head for two days. <laughs> and I have it stuck in my head again now, just from reading my notes. <laughs> the Ode to Joy, like I said, was written by Beethoven in 1824. And since 1824, it's been used in a myriad of things. It was adopted as the melody for the hymn Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee. <laughs> you say that because i know that hymn ish a little bit i know i know a little bit but when but when i get ode to joy stuck in my head i put words to it they're just ode to joy over and over again i just i sing ode to joy ode to joy ode to joy (laughs) and that just doesn't make any sense because our words put to that music it was also used as the melody for the song a song of joy and road to joy it was also used as the national anthem of rhodesia it was used in the Beatles' second film, Help, Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange, and the anime series, Neon Genesis Evangelion, and their respective film. Like, it's used everywhere. Yeah, it's so recognizable. It's catchy. Yep. And one other place that they use it... Okay, <clears throat> my first thought on why he was humming Ode to Joy was that sometimes it's interpreted or played during Christmas as a Christmas song. So that was kind of my first thought on why he had it stuck in his head. Mm-hmm. But then it occurred to me that they also use Ode to Joy to make a closing montage at Olympic Games. Yep. And we still use it today. It's quite traditional now. So back in 1988, the Summer Olympics of 1988 were held from September 17th to October 2nd in Seoul, Korea. So in their world, the Olympics would have only been like two months prior. I know that that I would still have Ota Joy stuck in my head after watching the Olympics two mm-hmm. months prior. And since he is a, you know, man of the world, man of culture, I think there's a decent chance that he was at those Olympics. I say, with the Olympics on one hand and the fact that it's Christmas on the other, I think that is completely on the mark yeah. as far as a possibility. So if you think we're right on the mark and you would like to hear more from us, you can find the Mad Max Minute podcast on our homepage at madmaxminute.com. Follow us on Twitter at Mad Max Minute and join our Facebook group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. The Die Hard Minute podcast is a collaboration of Movies by Minute podcasters. Find out more about the Movies by Minute format at moviesbyminutes.com. Die Hard Minute is produced by Jim O'Kane. Our intro music is by John Stebby. Our closing theme is by Tom Geyer. You can follow Die Hard Minute on Twitter at Die Hard Minute on Facebook at Die Hard with a Podcast Listener's Limo and at DieHardMinute.com. Subscribe to this podcast by searching Die Hard Minute on iTunes and Google Play. And until next time, okay, 32 construction, 33 computers. T-Rex.
Tell me you got that. I got it, I got it. Hit your heart on Channel 5. <laughs>